You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Oh, thanks. A wee bit chat back. That's great. Bit of interaction is always pleasant for people up here. So this morning, we are continuing our Future Focus series, looking forward to what is happening for the rest of our lives. Um, and we're doing that by working through the book of Thessalonians. So today we're in Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. We'll read those in a wee minute. Um, but just a story so far is that Paul and his friends, Silas and Timothy, they have seen the birth of the Thessalonian church, um, but then they had to flee Thessalonica because of persecution. Uh, persecution from uh, the unbelievers in that Roman province. And so Paul and Silas, I forgot to put my glasses on. Hold on a second. This is a problem. Two seconds. Hands up those who have got to that stage in life where they need the old reading glasses. It's a great stage to be at. There we go. Do I look like a professor now? <laughs> My kids laugh at me because I have this. But that's how it is now, so I'm embracing it. So, um, so Paul, leaves Silas, Paul leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Berea to carry on ministering the gospel there, whilst he travels to, on to Athens and then to Corinth. Um, where he receives a letter from Timothy updating him on how the Thessalonians are doing. So the, the report states that the church, this is from Timothy, that the church is thriving and that the believers there remain strong in the faith and love despite the persecution and the suffering. So we're picking up at chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, which are Paul's prayer for the belief, uh, for the growth of the believers in Thessalonica. So that's what the title of the section is. So, a little story about me. Well, my family. A few years ago, my Dundonian granny booked to go on holiday with her brother Bill and her sister-in-law and her cousin. They were going to go to Spain for two weeks. And my granny's name was Mary. She was the kindest woman I've ever met. And uh, she was delightfully funny. Her name was Mary, but everyone called her May. And I think it was quite trendy back then when she was born to call daughters Mary. I think it was either after the Queen or the Virgin Mary, depending on, you know, what your background was. But um, <laughs> the Queen Mother, sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the thing to be called Mary back then. And uh, so Uncle Bill and his wife and his cousin and his sister go to the airport. And Uncle Bill, as, you know, designated responsible male adult had all the passports and he took them up to the passport desk and handed them to the lady and then he turns around and one of them is missing and so he says to his wife in this wonderful Dundee accent where's me and she says I don't know she says why are we me because granny's cousin was also called me so he turns back to the check-in desk, tries to sort a bit more of it out, then turns around a moment later, and his wife has gone missing, but the other two maids are back. And he's like, wait a minute, 
where's me? And my granny says, I do Because Uncle Bill's wife was also called me. So poor Uncle Bill had gone on holiday with three women called me. And he spent the whole holiday, by all accounts, saying, where's me? Where's me? So when I read this letter, which is full of Paul's hope for the young church in Thessalonica, I was struck by Paul's three maze in his prayer. And I remembered my Uncle Bill with his wheezy laugh as he told the story of the three maze, and it made me smile. So here are our three maze. Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they'd been separated from their freshly planted church. This was a, a young church. Um, they'd been separated by religious and political opposing forces. They were desperately concerned for this new church, that it would be suffering or that the community would be destroyed or corrupted by the opposition that they were facing. Then they received Timothy's report that the church is holding true to their love for God, even in an environment of persecution and suffering. And so Paul and the gang are absolutely delighted and relieved upon hearing this news. They're, they're just over the moon. So Paul's response is this prayer, and it lays out his desires and his hopes for the future of the church there. So let's open our Bibles, if you've got your Bible with you, either in book form or electronic. Um, it's only a wee, wee excerpt, so you can follow us on the screen if you want to. But let me read it for us. Hold on, get my Bible open. So 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Lord God, would you bless this to us? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other as for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So the first may. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May our God and Father himself clear the way. Has God ever done that in your life? Has he ever, thank you, I got a reply there, that was nice, thanks. Has he ever cleared a way for you to move forward when the obstacles seemed insurmountable? When I was in my early 20s, um, I worked for a big accountancy firm. Um, I'm not really quite sure how that happened. I think it was God's path, clearly, because I had studied English at university, um, and really there was no counting in that. Um, <laughs> but uh, second year of accountancy exams, um, I was in a year group. There were six of us, because it, it was kind of like university, because it was the traineeship. And um, three out of six of us failed the tax exam twice. <gasps> scandalous and uh, it was the company policy at the time was that you weren't allowed to do that they had to fire us so we were fired effectively or told that we would have to find new jobs and uh, I remember at the time James was away in Sri Lanka 
like he's about to be soon, um, visiting our friends across in Sri Lanka and the churches there. And so I was at home here, worrying and stressing and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my, I've lost my job, I'm losing my job, what, what will we do? What will I do? Lord, what will I do? And I prayed and I came to church here, this building, same church, years ago. And, uh, and a lady came up to me and said, Tori, I was just praying for you. And uh, I got this picture in my head of, of train tracks. And um, as I kind of moved along the train tracks, there was this giant tree that had fallen across the train tracks. Um, but then I noticed that the train tracks continued beyond the tree. I don't know if that means anything to you, but um, I just felt that I should maybe tell you. And I was stunned because I hadn't told her anything about my job. I was a wee bit ashamed of it, actually, to be honest, because, you know, nobody likes to say I'm a failure, especially at tax. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was stunned and blessed. I was like, gosh, what does this mean, Lord? And so I prayed, and I, it got to the following week, got to the Friday, and that was when I was due to leave. And so I was going in for a meeting with the senior partner of the of the uh, accountancy firm. And uh, he said to me, so, have you got anything, you found another job to move to? And I was like, no, but don't worry about me. You know, it's been fun. I've worked for you for three years. You've been good to me. Um, it's fine. And uh, he said, well, we wondered actually if you would consider staying. I was like, well, I can't. I, I thought it was against the policy. And he said, well, we wondered if you'd move into a different department. We've got another job there that we would like you to consider. And so, basically, I got an even better job at the same company when I thought that there was no way forward. Um, and in that little meeting, I actually got the chance to share a bit of the gospel with that man. <clears throat> and he was an incredibly wealthy man and very powerful and influential. But I took the risk anyway because I thought, well, what's he going to do, fire me again? <laughs> um, so I told him a little bit about Jesus, and he said, well, that's lovely, it's wonderful that you have your faith. Uh, glad that you're still on board with us. And I kept working there for another four years or so and had a, had a great time. That company was, was kind to me, but the whole time I had this conviction that I wasn't supposed to leave yet. It didn't feel right. And God confirmed that through a prophetic word when I came to church on Sunday through one of my sisters here at church. God cleared the way where there seemed to be no way. God made something that seemed impossible entirely possible again. And if he's done it for me, I'm sure he's done it in your life too. So God doesn't promise us a life free of obstacles, does he? But in my experience, he takes great delight in moving obstacles that block his purposes for our lives. Why? Because we then get to witness his presence, his power, and his guiding hands in our lives. We ask God to move, when we ask God, God to move obstacles, we are expressing dependence and trust and faith. And God loves that. He loves it when we express that to him. It gives us tried and tested experience of God's power to move obstacles and reliable lived evidence for our own faith. If we had no obstacles, we wouldn't experience the joy of overcoming the obstacles or the joy of living by faith. So, at the moment, I work as a piano teacher, and I also do a thing called spiritual direction. 
If you don't know what that is, Google it or come and speak to me afterwards and we'll chat. But um, as a spiritual director, I love a good reflective question. So I've got three takeaway questions for you throughout this wee talk this morning. So this is my first takeaway question. Should pop up on the screen, I hope. When has God cleared a way forward for you when it seemed impossible? Write it down. Take a a screenshot of it if you want. But chew on that this week. When has God cleared a way forward for you in your life when the way seemed impossible? Our God is the God of the impossible. So the second half of this first May... May our God and Father and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to be reunited. About 15 years ago, before we were a multi-site church, we had a church weekend away. And uh, one of my daughters left her teddy behind. And so when we got home, it was missing. And she was distraught. I phoned the place and they were like, no, no, we haven't found it. Oh, this is terrible. And so we had a few weeks of sleepless nights and much woe and many tears at this missing companion. And then a few weeks later, it was just before Christmas, I came to church to pick something up, I think. And uh, so I'd got the keys and I was coming into the downstairs office. It was raining and got to the door, went to open it. And there was a bin bag outside the church door and sitting in the rain on top of this bin bag was Teddy. I was like, how did you get here? He's a teddy, he couldn't reply. (laughs) And it remains a mystery to this day how Teddy found his way back from 150 miles away all by himself and landed on a bin bag outside our church. But it meant that Teddy was reunited with his besotted owner um, after a quick tumble in the washing machine. (laughs) But... uh, Paul's heart was to be reunited with the Thessalonian church. He loved them to bits. It was one of his first church plants. He really was committed to seeing these people um, nurtured and growing in the faith. And he wanted to be back together with them. When we're separated from those that we love and from those to whom we belong, we yearn and we look forward to the time when we can be together again, don't we? When did you last experience separation from the people that you love? Can you remember what that feels like? When we didn't know the love and the forgiveness of Jesus yet, we were separated from God's love by our sinfulness. Some of us have been Jesus followers for a long, long time. Can you even remember what that was like before you knew Jesus? Can you remember what it was like to be cut off? from his love and his goodness? Do you remember what it was like to yearn for that? To yearn for that something beyond. There must be more than this. Do you remember that feeling? Did you ever live with that hunger for meaning, for connection, for peace and assurance that always was just beyond your reach? Can you remember what that feels like? That longing isn't diminished by anything man-made or by any earthly significance. It's a spiritual longing. It can't be satisfied with the temporal, only by being united with the God who made us. 
We're designed for it. We're designed for unity with God. It's a beautiful verse in Ecclesiastes that says that God has set eternity in every human heart. God's all about unity. He is unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God, the three in one. God made us in his image. And as Christians, we are to be his image bearers. We are programmed for unity with God and with one another. So Paul's love for the church here is this beautiful echo of Christ's love for the church. Throughout his life, Paul took beatings and prison time and eventually was martyred in order to see the lives of those that he met united with God through the gospel of Jesus. Paul's desire for unity reaches across their separation. I googled it on the map from Thessalonica to Corinth, where Paul was at the time. It's about 360 miles. Just FYI, if you ever wanted to know that. I love maps. I'm a bit of a map geek. But Paul's desire for unity, it stretched across the 360 miles of their separation, and it echoed God's salvation plan for humanity in the work of Jesus on the cross. So Paul's prayer is to be reunited with his friends, to worship God together and to live in community. Do we desire that togetherness? Do we pray for it like Paul did? What would it be like for us to live in holy unity? Unity in our homes, unity in our relationships, in our in our church, in the churches, or across the globe, unity as a human race. How wonderful would that be? What about unity with the Spirit of God? Holy Spirit, he's my favorite. How can we be united with the Trinity this side of heaven? Have a, have a chew on that one too. It's a good one. Okay, so moving on. Moving on to Paul's Second May. Where's May? May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other for, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So, what's Paul's point here? He's saying, in the same way that our love for you increases and overflows, that's how you're to love each other and everyone else. He's saying, follow our example. Paul really, really love the church. Why? Jesus said in John, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And later on in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That was what he commanded, to love one another. It was a, a gospel imperative. The love held between believers in the early church would be the characteristic that identified them as followers of Jesus. It would be the culture-changing evidence of transformed lives, which would turn and transform the communities around them. Is this why Paul loved the church so much? Because he was following the command of Jesus? Yes, in part. But for Paul, I think, it went beyond that. It was personal. The love that he had for the church had everything to do with how he met Jesus. And the story of his own life transformed 
in his brush with eternity on the Damascus Road. Do you remember that story? Paul's blinded. Anyway, we'll come to that. In Newton's laws of motion, I had to Google what it was, but I knew the, I knew the quote. It said that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I wasn't great at science at school, but this law of nature certainly rings true with the Apostle Paul. His actions towards the spirit-filled Jesus followers after Pentecost, before he, was, before he was Paul, he was a guy called Saul. Same guy, different name. Um, <clears throat> his actions towards the church following Pentecost, he, he opposed the church. He was offended by them. He was violently opposed to them. He didn't just object to, to Christian teachings um, and the ideology. He took it to the next level and became an instrument of destruction. Before meeting Jesus, he hated Christians. He overflowed with hatred for Christians and for Jesus. When the Jewish leaders stoned Stephen, it says in Acts that Saul, who is the same guy, Paul, he was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Shortly after that, uh, in Acts it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Then in Acts 9, it reads, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, because that's what they called Christians back then, people that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them to prison in Jerusalem. This guy was literally hell-bent on destroying the gospel of Christ and everybody that believed in Jesus. He actively and violently opposed the church. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I don't agree with that. It, it was, he took it to the next level. And so when he met Jesus on his way to Damascus, like it says in that bit, can I have letters? Yeah, just read it. He meets Jesus in his manifest glory as he's walking on this road. And his reaction subsequently is of equal and opposite intensity to the violence and hatred that he held in his heart before. That moment irrevocably changed the course of his earthly light, his earthly life and eternal destiny. Saul literally saw a bright flash of light from heaven. He fell to the ground, spoke with Jesus or heard Jesus, and then went blind for three days. He then had a radical life turnaround as a result of God's mercy. As someone who had been instrumental in trying to destroy communities of faith in the early church, he turned from this consuming hatred of Jesus and the church to a heart filled with devotion. We don't know what the conversation or prayer happened in those three dark days for Saul. But we know that the result of him coming face to face with Jesus changed both his and subsequently our lives forever. Because here we are reading his teachings. Jesus even changed his name. That's how dead to his old self he was. He changed, Jesus changed his name from Saul 
to Paul. I sometimes wonder, God, if you were going to change my name, what would you change it to? Probably me. It's a family thing. <laughs> so in order to rescue Paul from this seething, overflowing hatred that he had, God had to blind him to his past life and his past way of thinking. Paul's entire worldview was changed by this encounter with the risen Jesus who appeared in all his glory. And Paul, having lived to tell the tale, just, is devoted to redressing the balance of his past sins by being completely committed to loving the church the same way that Christ did. For every action, there's an equal and, op equal and opposite reaction. Paul's praying for the Thessalonian church from the, from the perspective of his own radical rescue. It's a rescue that filled his heart with such a fierce love for Jesus and the church that he was prepared to die for it. His newfound love for the church flowed from his devotion to Jesus. If we love the Lord, then we love those that the Lord loves. And so Paul loved the church. Has the Lord ever turned your hatred for something into a love for it? Have you ever changed your mind? It's done a complete 180. A long time ago, someone asked me, uh, as I was walking in my village, when James and I were going to start a church in our area south of the city. And at that time in my life, I had quite pretty strong views against church planting. And so I kind of laughed it off politely. <laughs> And went home and then ranted to God about how rude she was. How rude. Imagine my surprise when a few years later, we started, James and I and a team, started what is now the Stonehaven site with that person that had asked me the question as part of the launch team. Now, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience to pinpoint the moment where God lovingly turned my mind around but somewhere along the way that's exactly what God did and I'm ever so grateful that he did I'm so thankful that the transformation of our lives and our character is something that doesn't just stop when we give our lives to Jesus when we first meet Jesus it's something that carries on throughout our, our earthly lifetime I'm so grateful that that is the case because if it, if it wasn't, I'd have missed out on so much of the adventure. So my next takeaway question, takeaway question number two. When was the last time that God changed your mind on something that you were immovable on? When in your life has God changed your mind or turned your heart around? So that leads us on to Paul's third May. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Okay, first thing. What does strength in your heart mean? Well, the Psalms are full of heart-strengthening lyrics. 
In Psalm 31, it says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your hearts, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord, be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear. It seems like strengthening your heart relates to having courage. These verses are so empowering. They kind of pump you up. Be strong, be courageous. And we love feeling that sense of strength, inner strength, don't we? Well, we do, until we realize that actually we might need to feel that strength because something that is going to happen that will require that level of strength and courage. It's like when you're a child and someone comments on how brave you are and you're like, yes, I am. Thank you. And then you feel all puffed up and proud of yourself. And they lead you into the nurse's office. And you sit down. And the nurse says, don't worry. It won't hurt a bit. Just look away. Ow! Before you know it, you're walking out the door with a I was brave sticker, a sore arm, and a, and a confused kind of expression. I feel a wee bit hard done by. Hang on, what just happened? You were so brave. Was I? So what is, why, what is it that the church needs to be strengthened for? Why do we need to have our hearts strengthened? What's Paul saying? Or what's Paul saying to the Thessalonians? Is it for the hardship and persecution that they're suffering at the hands of Paul's old friends? Yes, but it's also more than that. He's encouraging them to be prepared, to be blameless and holy in the presence of God our Father, when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, that changes things a bit. Jesus is coming back at some point. We don't know when. Only God knows that. It could be 200 or 1,000 years from now, or it could be next Tuesday. Jesus is coming back. And the early church, it seems, lived with the expectation that Christ's return would be within their lifetime. That's kind of, I would, if I was living back then, I'd probably think the same. But God is the author of time. And his ways are not our ways. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow about keeping his promise about Jesus returning. As some think, he is waiting for you. He does not want any person to be punished forever. He wants all people to be sorry for their sin and turn from them. Isn't that a lovely verse? The Lord's not slow about keeping his promise. As some think, he's waiting for you. God waits for us. What extraordinary kindness such unwarranted grace. So Paul was encouraging the church to be prepared to face the glory of God's presence by living blameless and holy lives. Why do you think he emphasized this? Again, I think that Paul is speaking from his own experience of meeting the risen Jesus in glory on the Damascus Road. The holy Jesus, the perfect Jesus, 
Jesus, whose presence and words caused Paul to fall to the ground and go blind. He came face to face with the perfect Jesus when his heart was full of hatred for Christ and the church. Paul was not blameless or holy in that moment. His prayer for the church is that they won't face Jesus in his risen glory before being made ready for it, being prepared for it by God. The power of God's presence in that moment is the same power, the same glorious light that was there in the beginning when God said, let there be light. The same glorious light was the consuming fire on Mount Sinai that the Israelites, the people, couldn't behold in case they died on the spot. That's what the Bible says in the Exodus. It's the same light in the pillar of flame and cloud that guided the Israelites in the desert. The same fire that fell from heaven and burned up Elijah's sacrifice in front of the prophets of Baal. The same fire, the same fire and glory that the angel took the live coal from to touch Isaiah's lips to take away his guilt and atone for his sin just before he prophesies the birth of Jesus. It's the same light that shone around the angels who appeared to the shepherds when Jesus was born. It's the same fiery star that lit the sky to guide the wise men to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. The same fire that descended on the upper room after the crucifixion and divided into tongues of fire which rested on those gathered and they were filled with what? Who? They were filled with God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. So this glorious heavenly light that blinds Paul is the manifest power of God and Paul is praying that the church will be prepared to be united with Jesus in his glory. How? By having the courage to live Holy Spirit-fueled lives that honor God in this lifetime in order to establish eternity in our hearts. I believe that if Paul was here today at Catalyst Vineyard, in our church, I believe that his prayer for us would be the same. I believe that his prayer would be, God, would you clear a way for unity? God, would you fill us with your love? God is love. He's made of the stuff. That's why Paul overflowed so much with it. Equal and opposite. He seethed and overflowed with such hatred for the church. And then when he met Jesus, he seethed, or what's the opposite of seethed? Just overflowed, <laughs> emanated, um, radiated the love that God has for the church. And his, the third bit of his prayer would be that God would prepare us and make us blameless and holy for eternity. For that moment when we stand alone before God. I spent some time doing some stuff with the Leadership College students. And, um, and one of the things we talk about is spiritual formation. And we talk a lot about how 
our relationship with God, what we have, each of us, between ourself and the Lord, that is the eternal part of who we are. That's the part that will live on in eternity. And we have all these, as, as people in our culture, we have all these plans for, you know, fitness regimes, how to stay healthy, we have healthy eating plan, fitness plans, career plans, financial plans. What's your spiritual plan? Do you have a spiritual plan for our spiritual growth? That's what this prayer is all about. It's Paul's prayer for the spiritual growth of the church in Thessalonica, but let's adopt it for here too. What's our plan for our spiritual growth? How are we going to make sure that there is something left of us when we are faced with this fiery light that burns away all sinfulness? What will be left of us? That which is eternal, that which has been redeemed and sanctified and made pure and holy by the Lord Jesus in our relationship with Jesus throughout our lifetime. And so my third takeaway question for you is, what would, be, what would being blameless and holy look like for you? Is that the second one? No. Third one was, how have you experienced God strengthening your heart for something? If you're going to work on the three questions this week, those are the three questions. And so let me just pray that prayer over us now as we finish. In the words of Paul. Now may God, our Father himself, and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to be united. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Amen.